Hi, I'm Julia. And I'm Sam. I'm a composer. And I'm an actor. And this is the 29-Hour Podcast. Julia and I both uh, spent a lot of time developing new uh, pieces of theater. We actually met um, developing one of Julia's musicals. And along the way, we've gotten to work with some incredibly talented, super smart artists. We always just want to pick their brains. So this podcast is our conversations with those people that we are excited to share with you. This week, we spoke with writer and performer Daniel K. Isaac. We took this podcast on the road, so we didn't have our normal um, recording set up, so there might be a little more ambient noise than you're used to. Thank you for bearing with us. Um, Alex Wise and Wesley Taylor have this web series about being roommates slash lovers navigating... Um, they're very odd couple opposites relationship, uh-huh. and so this is their third season now. Um, and spoiler, they're together now <laughs> and navigating actually dating while living together with this sort of like cast of family and friends around them. They're so funny and hilarious and talented. Really, Broadway stars have these incredible cameos and relationships to them. It's funny. It's yeah. funny writing. They're yeah. funny people. It was a good time. Cool. Yeah. How did you get involved with that one? They reached out to me about that one. I've known them, I guess, peripherally for years now, but I'd never done anything with them outside of readings, I'm guessing, if that. Yeah. It's <laughs> just a reach out. I think on Instagram, of all things. Oh, was yeah? was where they first messaged, because we didn't have each other's numbers. Oh. Um, so that's that's the world uh-huh. we're living in. Yeah. Um, really? Yeah. yeah. I think maybe once I've reached out to someone via Facebook, but it does. It feels like not real me. Yeah. Right. To not have an actual email address. Or, yeah. Or sometimes I feel like I'm. I've I've learned. Who was I talking to? Like a casting director or an assistant director, who said um, they were having trouble reaching certain actors they had. And then they would message them on Instagram or Twitter, and and they would reply faster than they would to normal email. Yeah. And I thought, okay, this is this <laughs> is the new world. I don't know what that means as far as like professionalism is concerned, but it certainly is a different means of communication. Uh, so for you, how to. much of that feels like comfortable and like natural? Mm. I prefer emails, <laughs> although I'm sure I'm behind on so many emails uh, and correspondences. With but, us, um, you were very prompt. <laughs> oh, good, good. Um, I feel like I get so much junk mail these days. Yeah. I've used that Unroll Me app, but still, I um, I just make every human a VIP on my um, phone Whoa. so that I can find the humans faster than the <laughs> spam mail or the advertising mail. I've just been watching Succession. Oh, yeah. Where they have that thing, I forget, was it like NHPI or something, like No Human Person Involved, as an acronym for people that this company doesn't care about. Oh, my God. That's crazy. VIP being you are an actual human being is uh-huh. better. Yes. Yeah. I like it. Wow. So when you email me, Julia, you're a VIP. It oh. comes with a gold star next to I it. I love it. <laughs> I actually do feel, though, this was one of the things I was going to ask you about. I feel like, of the many people, you know, that we meet in this industry, you Mm -hmm. know, like, I feel like you are especially good about 
being supportive of your peers. Like, I actually do feel like you make me feel like a VIP in a way that feels above and beyond. Oh, thanks. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like it's selfish because it, it culturally and artistically enriches and inspires me. Um, so, so it works out that they are my friends or, you know, I really believe in the community aspect of this quote-unquote business or career path we've chosen and so it's more fun to see friends than it is <laughs> perfect strangers and um yeah it's what I, I think it's what I spend my money on <laughs> tickets to things so might as well I've know. heard people talk about that about like the universal pool of money that we all just pay each other to yes, see each other's totally. things <laughs> it's like, like the same thousand dollars yes exactly exactly wow I, that's interesting yeah we think about like community a mm -hmm. lot on this podcast. Yeah. Do you feel like how much of your community do you feel like you like designed like I have chosen this community? Mm -hmm. And how much do you feel like, oh I guess this has sprung up and now these are my people? Yeah. You know, at first I thought every project I dove into, I think in the theater world especially, that becomes your family unit for a temporary amount of time. Mm -hmm. And um I think I aggravated my abandonment complex or sort of the the loss of family after each end was very devastating. And so uh, eventually I think I have been lucky enough to have a group of people that I invest more in perhaps um, or, or invest in outside of work in a way that keeps me sane and um, healthy and, and feels like a core community of sorts. But... Um, I think, I think I've been lucky, and just by virtue of being here for a decade now, uh, the community sort of springs up if you welcome it, and um, I love when the Venn diagram just continually overlaps, or the different permutations where they overlap, and uh, um, yeah, I, I, I realize I sort of have an unhealthy balance between most of the people I know are the people in the industry, <laughs> and so how lovely on one hand and then um, maybe myopic in another <laughs> um, yeah I choose to invest in it reminds me what you were saying about that about sort of like in dating someone outside the industry and like consci consciously being like there are things to think about other than theater and ways to spend my time other mm -hmm. than theater and that that's oh what yeah to I've just been having to or not having to wanting to um, think about balancing where I'm prioritizing my life and I think I had been just doing a lot of um, I had just always been prioritizing um, my career over like mm. literally anything else mm. in any given um, way mm -hmm. and I'm starting <laughs> to um, get to a point where and, and, and that was because I wasn't wanting to prioritize anything else. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting to a point where there are other things that I'm valuing as much, if not more. And I'm, I'm in the, I'm at the point of like, still sort of like figuring out how I'm thinking about those priorities. And they're still, I guess, sort of shifting and they'll probably always be shifting. But, um, but, uh, do you feel like that like re reallocation has like, helped hindered or been neutral in terms of actual like effect on your career that's a great question um and i think it's um i i don't know if i'm able to sort of like see that clearly <laughs> yeah, at least enough. at this point 
But are you happier? Yeah, I think I am happier. But then also there are moments, and I think this is part of the calibration, where um, I'll sort of like come to a moment where I'm like, oh, I haven't been doing as much for my career as like I would have been three years ago in any mm-hmm. like, given span of time. Mm-hmm. And th- that like panic mode sets in a little bit. Yeah. And then it's sort of like, oh, but it's okay because I've been doing things for other parts of my life. Yeah. Um, I also feel like in a way as we get older, like the concept of a year feels different. I was just like texting with a writer friend of mine mm-hmm. who I hadn't talked to in a while and I was like, you know, how's everything going? And he has now like two kids under three and he was like, you know, things are good, but I'm just like bummed. I feel like with these two little kids, I haven't, you know, gotten as much work done as I wanted. And just like seeing it from the outside being like, okay, maybe like this year or next year is a little slower. I'm like, that's fine. There's so many years. Mm-hmm. Also, you're raising two human beings <laughs> who will hopefully have a positive impact on the world. Isn't that so much greater than or just a very different set of priorities yeah. than we normally think about? I guess it's interesting when I talk to people who just had kids and they're like, you know, my priorities are totally different. Yeah. It's scary to think about. Mm-hmm. And I, to go back to what you asked me, though, like, I do think there is a mentality of, like, you have to sort of, like, give everything to this business mm-hmm. and be able to, like, drop things on a dime to mm-hmm. go after opportunities, especially as a performer. I th- mm. or, I don't, I'll just say as a performer, <laughs> I found that. Um, and I think that's part of that, like, panic that sets in is when I'm, like, but am I making myself available for as much as I can, Mm -hmm. you know? But then I'm also trying to think about being more proactive as opposed to just waiting for opportunities and that's something I'm still sort of like I got nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I'm it's sort of like well maybe it's okay that I'm not not like gonna be available for anything that comes my way because maybe I should be a little more intentional about (laughs) what I'm actually spending my time on Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, there's there's like that. I didn't read it, but isn't there that book, The Year of Yes, where um, someone just said yes to everything that came their way for an entire year? And I feel like on the opposite spectrum, there's a, a doctrine of saying no to things uh-huh. and creating space for. And and really, it's about finding the balance of being open to opportunities and prioritizing X, Y, or Z. Yeah, but also you know, creating your own safe space or needing to recharge or um, having the priorities be what you might need, not necessarily what the career might benefit from or dictate. Right. um, Do you feel like you've changed where you are on the yes-no spectrum? Yes. (laughs) I think I I used to say yes to everything. And I, I think that's my default, is still to do that. And I think... Um, it can run my body down physically, Mm -hmm. it can run my sort of spirit down and the wells, the reserve I have and also um, um, I think think the the writer um, part of me uh, suffers when I say yes to things as a performer more, um, Mm -hmm. as I carve out space um, for one versus the other, uh-huh. um, I find those two butting heads often. Yeah. Um, and, and the things I say yes to are, are nine times out of ten acting or performing opportunities. And, um, and that's where I 
I have to find the priority of, of what what I like to make make space for, and and deadlines help when you have a hard <laughs> deadline for one or the other. But um, I, I there's just only so many hours of the day, yeah, and so much time in the year, and um, an energy period for yeah. um, one or the other, or how you how you devote yourself to something. So I think that has now changed my sort of automatic yes to a little more selective. Um, yeah. When you say those like identities are like butting heads mm-hmm. in moments like that, what is that? What does that look like? It looks like okay. Th- this is the easiest way I can put it. Okay. If I have to audition for something, it means I am constantly memorizing that yeah. thing mm. or reading that script, and so um, I read less. I love reading fiction. I read less books if I am too busy reading scripts, which is a total first world problem to have. (laughs) I have X number of scripts to read. I'm grateful for that. Or a certain number of parts to audition for, or a certain number of pages to memorize. But but the reading, just as much as my viewing theater or movies or intaking as an audience member, um, is what fills my reserve up or inspires me or gives me fuel to do the other things and so um, it's it's as simple as that as if my brain is devoted to reading and memorizing one thing then I don't have as much time to a write but b read something else or watch something else yeah. um, in a sort of blank slate state yeah um, yeah time time management yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm all three of us, I think, are big fiction readers. Yeah. Oh, good. I love it. I love it so much. Um, yeah, I feel like all of the things I enjoy are basically just, like, taking in, like, narrative things. Just on, like, I like movies, I like books, I like mm-hmm. screenplays. Mm-hmm. Those are basically the things I like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Being told stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you talk about actor versus writer identity, yeah. have both of those been in play for you all along? No, the writing thing came much later, I would say, um, halfway through my time in New York. Um, I think one did lead to the, it was a sort of causal effect of, um, on some, in some ways, the writing I fell into because I was writing autobiographically and um, capturing uh, real life conversations I had with my mother and so transcribing turned into writing creatively and then um, I think feeling a lack of agency as an actor and an actor of color or a queer actor um, led me to f- um, fall headfirst into writing more so that I could feel just a little more agency um, in exercising my voice or creativity or carving out space for myself um, where I felt I wasn't allowed to grow or sp- spread my wings or whatever metaphor. That's um, interesting because I don't, you don't usually perform in your own stuff, right? No, although I I aspire to someday. Oh, really? But I I when I put on my writer hat, I um I would like to feel what that is and best serve it in a way. And that's not to say that I can't or couldn't. Um, and in my most autobiographical project about my mother, I would act in that. And so um, I think I think that uh, I leave space for that and focus on creating space for others in a way in the writing. And um, yeah, I, 
I think I used to think of myself as such a baby playwright or a baby writer that I wouldn't be able to handle um, the rewriting or the the process of, of critiquing something uh, while simultaneously being on stage, say. Um, and, and so I, I'll work up to it. But for now, I, I like being on one side of the table uh, and, and trying to be the best I can be at that to serve the piece itself. Um, yeah, if that makes sense. So at this point, like, how do you... Like how I mean, we talked about like what it looks like when those identities like butt up against each other. But mm-hmm. how how do you conceive in your head of like of of those identities like being shared within you? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, because if you're saying like the writing started later, like do, do you still feel like an actor first and also sort of a writer, or do, mm-hmm. do they feel like sort of like equally weighted? Is yeah, I think um, the reason why I I judged myself in calling myself a baby playwright in the past is that I I did feel very much that way as a new um, that emerging artist that we're always sort of applying for um, that kind of status or entry level thing and I'd rather just or, or in a I'm in a place now where I would like to own if not equal weight just sort of weight in general so that I'm not um, limiting one or the other yeah and um, and embracing the multi-hyphenate aspect of it and I think I have um, I fall in a lineage of people who are doing that and I am inspired by and um, aspire towards uh, and not having to um, like take off one hat to put on the other but just sort of leave them all on and and recognize that that feeds into each other hopefully um, and embrace that how like I'm really interested in the idea of those feeding into each other Mm -hmm. and I'm curious like if you like what does that look like Mm. Uh, a recent example would be I was doing earlier this summer I did a play called you never touch the dirt by Zhu Yi at Club Thumb directed by Ken Rushmore and that play had these very short, very tight economical scenes Um, and once we had the full shape of it I would have certain snippets of time, not huge ones but um, certain chunks of time that I was off stage and the the week after closing I had a reading of a play that I hadn't finished yet so I was literally backstage in those small snippets of time trying to spit out vomit out a new scene for my play while listening for my cue like changing my costume and getting ready for um whatever was next because that was the only time i had Uh and also um it it forced me to sit still in a place that um that i think is a luxury to sit still and write. Um, that sounds like an anxiety dream. It truly was, but I also, I know that I like work, working under pressure and I like deadlines, and that felt like throwing on a kitchen timer in the worst, <laughs> highest stakes way possible. But um, but it worked, and and probably to Zhu's credit, that the play I wrote ended up having a lot of short scenes, um, <laughs> and it, it is from probably the influence of being in her play yeah. and also the time I had to write that play um, and I, I think that feeds into that play's ethos or yeah. whatnot yeah so cool 
I'm curious about writing autobiographically, mm-hmm. at least of the show that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Do you... Is, like, your family say, like, do they see everything you do? How do they feel mm-hmm. about it? Mm-hmm. Um, the answer is the opposite. They see nothing I do. Really? And so... I was just talking to my roommate about this, who is Iranian-American, and she's embarking on writing her first autobiographical novel, and um, and her mother and brother are still with us, and she has a larger extended family, and they are pretty fluent um, in English, more so than my mother is, and so they would have access to her work in a way that mm. I already, by a language barrier, do not have the same fear trepidation or um, we cannot my mother and I cannot access each other's language in the same manner and thus the work we output she in some buried part of her is an aspiring poet and I in my writing will never fully um, know one another's work in the most intimate way which I'm sure is in some ways a luxury for me as I write sort of shamelessly autobiographically (laughs) And also, she has a sort of political and religious stance against my work for being so queer and um, uh, shamelessly sexual or quote-unquote liberal or whatnot. And um, and I, in a way, I guess that frees me, even though I'm sure it, it's, you know, I'm in therapy and <laughs> it, I will never get affirmation in this parent-child way that I'm sure many of us seek or are innately drawn to. But it, it helps yeah. in other ways that I, <laughs> there is no policing of it that can happen. Yeah. Uh, and as much as she just wouldn't be present for <laughs> it. Um, I don't know about my extended family, but I, I don't think they're necessary. They watch my commercials more than I do my <laughs> actual TV work or film work. So The other thing I always wonder about with writing autobiographically is like, how much do you think about sort of being faithful to the truth mm. versus using it as a jumping off point. Yeah. Um, I... This feels like a large statement that I don't know if it's true, but I, as I say it out loud, I'll figure out how I feel. I don't I don't always trust my own memory, and so I don't know that autobiography can ever be fully, quote-unquote, truthful, and so it, it already feels skewed, or, uh, you know, the perspective is selfish no matter what, I think. And thus, um, I think that helps me release into the fiction thereof um, in many ways because I don't always trust my own narrative or my recollection of things. And um, in my family of mother and son, we have unreliable narratives for each other and a revisionist history, um, one would say, of the other and how we remember things. And so that probably helps my writing leave the truth Although, um, although I was encouraged not too long ago to not write autobiographically and thought, I don't know that I could, and even if I did, it would just be my secret that it was autobiographical <laughs> all along. I'm not sure. I hope I don't write some like horribly dark thing someday and someone he finds this interview and thinks, oh no, that was autobiographical. But I don't know. I, I lean into the fact that I write from a personal place and I, I'm not ashamed of it, and I, I guess I've let myself lean into that as much as possible and, and lean into the fiction of it because the actual people won't be telling the story anyway. So um, it can only be my 
perspective and one perspective is always skewed or um, slanted or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it reminds me of actually the way I think about AP musical styles. Mm. Sort of comforting yourself by saying like the, if, even if what I really wanted was to like nail this other style exactly, mm-hmm. I couldn't. Mm. Like it's in my own incapability to make it exactly like something else yeah. I don't have to worry about yeah. oh it's going to be too close. Right. And I think you know, we see movies that are based on a true story. Otherwise, you'd go see a documentary. And even then, I believe all documentaries still have a, a slant towards a certain perspective or perspectives. And so um, what is truth is a larger conversation <laughs> and a heady argument for an episode of The Good Place or something. But <laughs> it, is, um, it will always be our, our voice doing it. And if not, someone else's voice doing it. You're writing about these women in gymnastics, and that I'm sure limits you in some ways and entirely frees you in others. And because you have a game order or like yeah. a success or failure built into their scores, and, and that narrative is there, and yet the other things you do to expound from it must be exciting. Or, like, incredibly frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, creatively energizing, hopefully. Yeah, that so much is in what you point at. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So something I think about, and it's like just sort of bouncing off of like writing really close to life. Mm -hmm. Since we were in a writer's group together, I know that you have a lot of like info and style and stage directions. (laughs) Yes. I really care about them for some reason. (laughs) To the point that when I write with my writing partner in the TV world, she's always trimming down my stage directions even though I feel like tone and um, and world building happens from us there and what everyone else designers, directors performers make of it is their own um, volition but uh, like I said I, I find that the writing is an exercise of creative agency for me and so I, I want to put that in there and, and then I can let go of it but at least I'll have put it down and said this is the voice in which I have written it now you know take of it what you will in this very collaborative way which is what excites me but right I want it to be interesting to read for the person who is not in the industry as much as <laughs> the person who is um, but also know. like it's like that I love that that like um it helps like establish a sense of tone for yeah. the artists who are approaching the mm-hmm. project. That I I I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to both of you as actors, do you feel like you like use stage directions when you get a thing? Yeah. I mean I like as I'm like thinking I've never like considered it in that way, but mm-hmm. I definitely like when I have a friend who I've worked on her projects a lot and she also likes to um um, lean into her voice mm-hmm. in the stage directions mm-hmm. and as I'm thinking about it I'm like oh yeah this definitely did influence um, my take on approaching this piece yeah yeah and I think that's great yeah yeah I um, in my training as an actor and in my experience of encountering and working with different performers there are those who completely cross out stage directions and punctuation mm-hmm. and make of it what they will and I respect that in its own way 
selfishly as an actor and as a playwright, I sort of worship punctuation, <laughs> and I, I, I revere the stage directions in the art of collaboration to believe that there is a roadmap or a guideline or a, a voice that has guided me before I add my voice to yeah. it. And so I hope to find that uh, when I'm a writer as well, someone who can connect on that level. And oftentimes I strip punctuation away or write very linearly in a more poetic format and then let actors piece it together mm -hmm. where they will. Um, but if I f feel passionately about it, then I add the punctuation back in. That's, I, I also, when I was like doing theater in high school, we were basically told like ignore these stage directions. Yeah, I remember that in but high school too. now that I'm thinking about it, I think it's because like we were doing you know like classic musicals mm -hmm. right just mm -hmm. in high school and like the stage directions would literally have blocking in them yes yeah from like, like the original down stage left yeah. table and chair <laughs> right. and yeah. so like that's not useful if you're not totally. if you don't have that kind of staging and right. so um but when you're working on new work the stage directions are there for a very different purpose mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there isn't any like blocking information right from right. a previous production so there isn't anything that anything that isn't there to serve mm -hmm. the project yeah 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 but there are but there are definitely still people who i work with who seem to just not look at the stage directions truly and yeah and i hate to say it but then i will not work with those actors in the developmental aspect of things yeah because that doesn't serve like i wish for any actors listening <laughs> i've learned there is a new circle of agony and hell which is that of the playwright hearing a public reading and and hearing their words that will never that is not uh, under rehearsed um they're you know people are looking at their music stand or not and or trying to connect with the audience and um, finding their voice there that does not serve the playwright in hearing what they need to hear to actually better the play or it's a an overly vocal or dead silent audience that then influences the actors performance mm -hmm. and and gestures and whatnot and I wish I wish actors who don't know that agony could experience it once so that they could then just continue to aid in the process rather than the product oriented mindset that I think we as performers are embedded to operate at yeah. um, but it, in process it does not necessarily help um, but so that's that's really interesting but so you're talking about like a reading where there's just been like the most minimal of mm -hmm. rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So, in in a setting like that, how can the performance, which is sort of a product, mm -hmm. um, feel more like process oriented for mm -hmm. you? I think I think the most helpful readings I've had, and and many pl uh, playwriting companies or um, uh, organizations have facilitated those in which there are two readings either on the same day or over separate days so that a the playwright has a chance to workshop or rewrite or uh, figure things out and the performers get to also feel out what worked and what didn't and recalibrate or adjust their nerves or 
um, their jitters or, or re-encounter uh, the piece again. Yeah. That has been the most helpful to me. And I know a lot of companies do that, and I, I actually really admire that. And you get different audiences in. And so um, I think I think we operate in theater and recognize that each night or matinee is a different performance and a different relationship between the audience and the piece. And so to get a snippet of that or a taste of that in the reading workshop level can be so informative. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Another thing you've done, we actually, we've talked about you on this podcast before because we were recording right after I saw your page 73 reading. Oh, yeah. And I was saying, this is such a tiny thing, but that you guys sound designed that reading. That's and Ralph Penny. how much it sort of added to like mm-hmm. thinking about what this might be like on stage to yeah. have that element running through. Yeah. It helps me so much, and and that is Ralph Pena being a wonderful above and beyond director. But that that piece, I think, and maybe maybe my writing in general, I know that we are. It's like I write knowing it is a collaboration, and so I need the other elements for the piece to live. I was just reading um, a different piece, and it, and in it, a musical theater writer argues for having more than one piano for their reading for their workshop for paying for more musicians in it and how that would elevate the piece and i think oh right you you know that the product will have so many more elements to it um how much more does that help relay the story in the moment and how wonderful and above and beyond could that be if we could translate that in the workshop stages of it um yeah that was ralph being amazing and that it energizes the audience i've learned if i see a friend's film cut that is pre sound mixing and um soundtrack scoring i'm i'm actually so bad at giving feedback because all i can think of is this is an underscore or where is that sound effect or this transition feels so clunky but if it's set to music or i'm a sucker for a good trailer Trailers are perfectly pitched to every beat of music and every cut is, it, I think it's an incredible art form. And many times I'd rather watch the trailer than the movie. <laughs> and I think that, but it's like that, that sells the product. And so um, if the hope is to actually get produced or also to benefit the play and grow from it, having those other elements, those institutions that provide um, other designers like lighting and set and sound designers to help give a map or sketch out a version of the world. Um, how what a gift and I, how helpful that would be if we could have those resources right. on many other legs of the way. Right. Um, yeah, <laughs> it truly a luxury. I, I, did a, I did a table read last night for a new piece and it was a musical, and so but you know we had zero rehearsal, so mm-hmm. the composer just sang all of the music Mm. um and it was interesting like you know it it was fine and Mm -hmm. he sounded great and whatever Mm -hmm. but you know there would be songs where it would be different characters singing different lines and like that part of it just like didn't come through yeah but like in this instance there was just there were no resources to of course to like (laughs) to do yes that which like i would say is pretty fundamental mm-hmm. that element of this of isn't this that what we're always coming up against is resources, <laughs> resources. how much yeah. we have yeah. versus um what the project may or may not need yeah. in that moment yeah yep <laughs> yep <laughs> so 
switching from like Riddle World to Acro World. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to find out because I am a huge Billions fan. Oh yay! I'm. I want to talk everything about it because I love it. But the thing I thought to ask first was: mm-hmm. so you've done four seasons now. Four seasons. And yes. the character Ben Kim has been on all four. Yes. I'm curious about like character development over all that time. Mm-hmm. If that feels like a conversation or like mm-hmm. how, just how that's been. You know, it goes back to day one in which many of us, aside from the core series regulars, did not know how much of our characters would continue to be on in the story. Mm. And I look at the way Kelly O'Coin, who plays Dollar Bill, is now a series regular. Or Asia Kate Dillon, they came in on season two and now they're a series regular. They, These writers and our executives, Brian Koppelman and David Levine, have grown the world so exponentially and yet offered each character their own paths to to grow from so that they don't live in stereotypes and there is room for nuance and change. Um, I am very lucky to experience that in a, in a character that came in slightly cocky in the pilot alone from his education and background and gets cut down and then has to um, sort of find his footing and his voice and confidence and in many ways I I joke to myself and to Brian and David that they have life coached me in real life as my character has been life coached or performance coached in the show Um, and undoubtedly that show has changed my life from the basis of I, I used to wait tables and bartend when I started it and now I am lucky enough to live as an artist solely or um or the doors that have opened and the projects I've had access to and been able to be a part of because of this show. Um, so I feel like as my character has grown and changed um, over the season, my life has truly grown and changed over what the years. What did that moment feel like? The moment of being like, you know what? I don't need to do this other stuff. <laughs> it kind of happened... Um, it, it happened so simultaneously and seamlessly. I was at a restaurant that I was at in good standing enough to basically be a substitute teacher and drop in whenever I needed to mm. I guess so not like a teacher but you know in a way that I could um, sign on for some shifts and leave and not be permanently on the schedule and um, I think it was season two we were filming and the holidays were coming up and I thought well if I can squeeze in some shifts I could use the holiday money because who can't uh, around gift giving and um, and travel or whatnot and um, that restaurant worked on a online app system where you could uh, log on to this app and sign up for a shift. And when I went to log on, it said, um, you are no longer an employee here. <laughs> and I thought, well, that is a sign from the universe. If I've ever had one, I am no longer an employee here. But months had passed since I'd had a shift there. So it, um, I think I at first had a, a bit of panic and fear thinking oh this was a safety net of sorts and instead I it only bolstered me to lean into it and um, you know a summer or two with unemployment certainly was necessary and uh, and being frugal and managing you know my bank account and counting receipts or whatnot but it when I look back on it and think I think I'm 
four years free of a, a restaurant service job. I think that's right. Um, I'm very incredibly thankful. And if I'm ever sort of down or um, having a rough patch, I can always think, or if I'm having a hard day on a project, I can always think, remember that time you had shingles and you were opening up your uniform in the walk-in freezer to like cool down your shingles like remember that time you like my mother was going through cancer treatment and I couldn't afford to go home or like the shittiest of customers and like uh, breaking a beer glass on the cleaning spinner on my hand and like bleeding <laughs> just I think back and think okay I have much to be grateful for <laughs> progress has been made um, and and I go from there. Yeah. <laughs> that is, yeah, I feel like that's something that we've talked about. Is like, it is hard to, some progress is not that tangible. Mm-hmm. Like, you sort of have to tell yourself, like, I am somewhere different, but it's yeah. so hard <laughs> totally. to really to, feel it. Yeah, yeah. I think a certain amount of time has to pass before you can recognize it even happening. Yeah. Because um, I, I haven't moved in 10 years, so I can't, like, look at it through real estate, uh-huh. you know? I, I, um, I, like, I can't, like, I've, I've always shopped thriftily uh, as much as I love clothes. Like, I love sales more, mm-hmm. and so, it like, it doesn't translate to my possessions, or we don't have a car-based atmosphere, right. so my, like, cars haven't upgraded, so <laughs> I have to think of it in other ways. Um, uh, it yeah. is interesting to hear about sort of, like, the development of this character. Hmm. And not because you know this is a, like this podcast is focused on new work, so we're often talking about the development of a character. Yeah. Over the course of like getting a piece ready for consumption, but you're talking about the development of a character over four years. Four now. years yeah. of of something that's been presented. Right. And I right. find that interesting. Yeah. In juxtaposition with the stuff we tend to talk about, because like as I'm thinking about it, like I guess everything on tv is also like new work mm-hmm. right totally. like it's, yeah. it's yeah and it's all in development but i i like do you feel how, i don't know how to ask this but like do you feel like you're a part of that development mm. or like how does that compare to being a part of the development of a play mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know fans of billions will ask how much of it is scripted versus not and, and we always say it is 100% scripted. So we live in that atmosphere of, of respect and deference to the writing. Yeah. And, and so um, that dictates the growth in a way. And, and I by no means am a main character on Billions. I am part of this ensemble. And I love, I actually love that kind of storytelling. Um, and, and I think that's a gift that we have. And the... Um, the mature audiences we have and the gift of this golden age of television mm-hmm. in which that much time can be taken to do something. I read this thing of um, Stephen King said when his movies are turned into or when his books are turned into movies he call, he feels like it's like stuffing a suitcase for a vacation or whatnot that it's, you can't stuff all the things you want to take with it mm. so then the, the piece of luggage feels overstuffed and of course inevitably that movie does not do the same thing as say a tv show would with the volume of his books and how they can translate in a two and a half hour medium versus an eight or ten hour medium and i think that um 
is why I love TV so much because <laughs> I love that that we get to have the gift of this long form relationship and investment in these characters and they can change in in the ways that we as humans change where we may not even recognize that we are changing or evolving or how far we may or may not be coming and inversely how far we don't change or where we have mm. such yeah. stubborn lines and where we don't evolve and whether or not that is our downfall or um if it is to your detriment or not. That's so interesting, because I feel like I've never really done anything like this, but, like, for theater, you know, you sort of, like, can see the arc of your character from mm -hmm. the beginning of the process, and yeah. so you sort of, or I'll speak for myself, like, I try to sort of, like, um, figure out who this character is, and, mm -hmm. like, even if there's, like, a change over the course of the play, like, you're not really changing like mm -hmm. you're you're playing a character who like and you know what that is mm -hmm. but if you're on a tv show like you could discover yeah three years later that something that you thought was fundamental mm -hmm. about a character is no longer right. or is like you know exacerbated or you know like just like but that's but then that's also like how, how it is in real life totally yeah. so that's yeah. that's that's cool i've yeah. never really thought about that yeah. I love that, that it does feel so conversational. That, like, in a way, how could the writers not be bouncing off, you know, your performance in season one when they mm -hmm. think about season two? Right, right. And they they have sort of, um, I call it a magpie thing, which I, I totally am in my writing, where I just steal shiny objects and, <laughs> and put it into my work. They, um, we have, like, Dan Soder loves wrestling. He plays Mafi, and there is a love of wrestling in his character. <laughs> so, you know, Brian Koppelman also loves wrestling, and so that that has lived in that. Um, uh, uh, Asia Kate Dillon has been um, revolutionary in playing uh, a they-them pronoun uh, character and, I, and identifying as such, and that, you know, they have asked them of... Our creators, Brian and David, have asked Asia for insight or... Um, perspectives on um, and while their creative voice and their you know the plot of the season those things are their mastermind and this their incredible writers rooms they assemble um, we we're we've been together now for four years five years really from when we first started shooting and um, it does feel like a family or they know how to tap into the the like family pulse or the character pulse in each <laughs> family member uh -huh. and the cool thing about the time horizon of TV is I feel like in theater like I love that like being a magpie and looking for the shiny thing mm -hmm. but I feel like if it's you know just sort of one static you know 90 minute piece and you're workshopping it you know once every couple of years mm -hmm. it's harder I think to find that sort of shiny thing in, or, or in yeah. an organic way right right I remember Taylor Mac joked in his, the 24 hour series he did um or that Judy did, as their preferred gender pronoun used to be, um, that that the you have an idea for a play, and so then you write a play, and then it gets a reading, and then it gets a workshop, and then it gets an out-of-town trial that maybe doesn't go well, so then you do it out-of-town again, and then it uh, comes back to another reading, and then a producer session, and then maybe another workshop or roundtable, and then you get the production, and so from the insemination of the idea to the actual product, maybe the relevancy has been lost, or the urgency, or the... the reason for um has been muddled or changed or uh, completely um 
dropped along the way. Yeah, just rehashing the same thing over mm-hmm. and over and over mm-hmm. and over. Yeah. So that's that's our fun <laughs> uphill battle we <laughs> often climb. Um, and that's not to say movies get made overnight either, sure. or TV sure. shows are greenlit, um, you know, with that same urgency. But I um, I do wonder where the where that could be changed, um, so that so that we could uh, speak more to our present time, or when we are outputting, versus the sort of workshop circle of purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, because that still exists, how we find joy or inspiration and um, fulfillment in the, the long-term process is the other, I think, part of at least my journey of growing up and um, yeah. uh, and, and being in this and thinking, okay, it is a marathon. How do I find fulfillment along the way or what keeps me going in the, the long hall in the the space the maybe the gargantuan spaces in between at least seemingly so so what are you finding is doing that for you right now it goes back to what we started with which is seeing things you know seeing friends in their shows and their movies and their plays that that keeps me going because that has always inspired me and um and reading and uh i love modern art so I love going to museums I love nature and so I love um, if I can have time to tap into those other um, places of inspiration and fill my well up that helps and um, and and then you know I hope to have the deadlines to work towards whether that's through a playwriting group or an accountability group or um, you know hopefully future productions or um, projects that are greenlit that that'll then keep me inspired I think Um, yeah finding the joy on a day-to-day basis is necessary in this it's a marathon yeah (laughs) yeah yeah climate change aside I mean my (laughs) current perspective is life can be really long and so uh, while it feels like the end of the world in this moment and in this administration um it's also maybe very, very long, or can be, and you know how do we journey through that, uh, and not just agonize or feel so down on ourselves during it, and, yeah. and instead find the joy in the journey. I haven't solved it, but yeah. I, it is what I aspire <laughs> to. You know? Yeah, it sounds good. I mean, I just did a show this summer mm-hmm. that. I had been a part of the development for seven years. Yeah. And what was interesting, which is not always the case, but um, can be the case, was that it felt extremely relevant the first time I worked on it. And yeah. it only got more relevant oh, that's because great. it was about yeah. climate change. Yeah. Oh, God. And that's so um, sad. How did it feel, though, to be with it for seven years and then to finally present it, what I imagine, night after night? Yeah, and, it and was. Get to tell the story. It was great. Yeah, so I found out special. last night that I got nominated for an award for my, oh my performance. God, congratulations! congratulations. Um, which is something I don't really know how I feel about. Yeah, because um, we don't do it for the accolades. Right. <laughs> yeah. But when I did get this email, I felt happy. Mm. But like, usually when I look at awards, I sort of 
go like oh well that doesn't really mean anything you know what i mean mm-hmm. like but there are there are in terms of like what it says about the work that i did it doesn't really say much mm-hmm. but in terms of um being something to point to mm-hmm. i'm that's where i think the the value is mm. you know mm-hmm. something to point to that like other people will be able to see when you point to it that it means something you know what i mm-hmm. mean like because we've decided as a culture that like if something's being you know acknowledged in this way that that has meaning and so i'm <laughs> you could be conflicted and feel yeah. two things at once there. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I think what's more remarkable is that you were with it in this seven-year journey. And I guess the hope is that there is something cathartic and fulfilling having been with it for that long. Because the opposite would be dreadful, and I don't think that's what happened to you. Oh, yeah. I mean, Um, for me, like, doing the show every night felt incredible. mm -hmm. Um, So, that was great. And now you have a a little gold star from someone else. Yeah, that, that wasn't necessary, but it can be its own cherry on top. It's 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 uh, I'm still unpacking how mm-hmm. I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's sort of like <laughs> we were saying, like it's tangible progress. It's like a concrete thing that marks that this happened, and someone externally, like validated it. Yeah, right. And I'm trying to get to a place where all the validation I need, or m- maybe not all, but like where the validation I need is coming from within myself. No, you know what totally. I mean? Yeah. And yeah. so that's where I'm Torn. confused. Yeah. Because it also felt very nice to find this out. Of course. You know? You, you can feel more than one thing at yeah. once. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, I don't think... I think it's definitely important to get some validation from yourself and, like, mm-hmm. to value that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I aspire to that being my only source of validation. Mm, mm. I think it is sort of nice to be like connected to the outside world and yeah. care what other people think. I don't know. I think it's a balance, or I aspire for the balance. Yeah. But yeah. I hear what you're saying in your leg of this journey, mm-hmm. that to depend on the external would be detrimental in the long run or in your current state of being, yeah. of how you continue to fuel yourself in your work. Right. And I'm also, it makes me, um, well, what I'm curious about is like, so I haven't, well, now I guess I've shared it with all of our listeners, but I haven't (laughs) shared this news with anyone except for the person I was with when I found out Uh and my boyfriend. Uh And I am worried that I'm going to feel a little sad if people are like, wow, that's amazing. Uh Who, like, I'm, I'm worried that like, the thing that's exciting is not my performance, but is this award nomination. Sure. You know what I sure. mean? And, and like, you may not even win it. Yeah, and I probably other, like, mm-hmm. lingering. Who, who, yeah. And that also, like, doesn't really mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. But, like, I guess I want the thing that's exciting to be the performance mm-hmm. and not, like, the proximity to prestige. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know? That will serve you in the long run. <laughs> and whereas I'll say, um, from what you're saying, Julia, and my relationship and knowing you and in the way you approach your work and how you share it with others, I understand why your perspective lives in that relationship because your writing is dependent on the audience and in sharing it externally 
and having that conversation, whether or not it's about accolades is its own thing, but that relationship is necessary outside of yourself. And as a performer, I see the, the need to drive yourself to not be for that conversation, even though you are, you are in that conversation with the audience when you're doing it, but not after the fact. You know, yeah. mm. the piece is on its own in that two and a half hours in the dark theater, yeah. not necessarily the conversation you have about your role or about the accolade right. after, after or outside. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, it's true. I do sometimes have an aversion to sort of talking about writing. You know, mm-hmm. people ask you to like describe the thing you wrote. Yeah. And you really want to be just like, watch the thing I wrote. Right. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> My Let that speak kid. for itself. Yeah. 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 And I don't think you're writing to win an Oscar, Emmy, you know, Tony. Yeah. Like that, you write because you care about what you're writing about. And you, Sam, perform because you care about what you're performing about. Yes. And um, But I'd be lying if I said I didn't want an Oscar someday, you know? Like, yeah. So, so I think we can have all of the motivations, mm. but maybe not, like, it, uh, there's a balance. My favorite word today. Yeah. 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 But I think what I'm contending with is, like, the the wanting of the award, I don't want it so much as, like, a validation of my performance because mm. I feel at peace with that. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't change anything about it at this point. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think what it does do is sort of what you were saying about um um your experience on billions is Mm -hmm. that it like can open up doors yeah in certain ways and um that is um what it is and this is you know a a regional theater award so Mm -hmm. it's not gonna open up doors in the same way probably but like i um i'm just like i'm uh, what I'm curious about is like if everyone sees it the same way mm. you know like I don't maybe this is just my like insecurities of, and lo- of like trying to read people's minds mm-hmm. but like I don't want like it, like if I were to share this um, news I wouldn't want people to like think I was like sharing it for the wrong reasons you know what I mean mm-hmm. like and maybe that's silly and the wrong reason is that implying that, like, the reason you did the role in the first place is for this accolade or that you have this sort of or, a certain kind of ambition. Or me being like, look at me, I'm amazing. And, like, these people agree my performance was amazing. You know what I mean? <laughs> hmm. I think in the hour that I've known you, I can confidently <laughs> say that your essence is not that of a, hey, look at me and how fancy I am for getting this nomination. So I'd like to think the friends you have known longer will know that about you should you choose to share this which again is of your own volition and what your relationship to say social media is and that's on a case by case basis well, would you like to stay for another hour and talk about social media <laughs> that is its own thing that's all rob